Lord, we just thank you tonight, according to Psalms 512, that you surround us as a body with your shield of favor and that no sickness and no disease has any right to live in our bodies. And we just thank you, Father, that that anointing surrounds us and shields us. Lord, we confess, Proverbs 4.22, that your words are life and their healing and health to all of our flesh, every flesh in our body and in our uh, church and in our families. We thank you. Your words are life to them. God, we confess tonight, Acts chapter 3 and verse 16, that we walk in complete healing. We walk in complete healing from kidney stones. We walk in complete healing from the flu. That as a body, we walk in the fullness and wholeness that you died to pay for. Lord, we, we confess Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2.24 that Jesus bore our griefs and our pains. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. And the punishment for my well-being fell on Him. And with His stripes we are healed and we receive that healing in Jesus' name. Father, we confess to You tonight, Romans 8.11, that because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, that it gives life to our mortal bodies. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and in our bodies, and it gives life to all of our flesh. Lord, you said in Jeremiah 13, verse 17, that you would restore us to health. God, you said in Isaiah 58 and 8 that, and, and 8, that our light would spring forth, and our health and healing would spring forth quickly, and that the glory of the Lord would be our rear guard. We receive it, Lord, on behalf of our body. We receive it on behalf of our families. Lord, you said, Psalm 103 and verse 3, that we should not forget all of your benefits. You forgive all of our sin and you heal all of our disease. That's a benefit of the children of the Lord. And Father, I just thank you for all these precious promises, for in you they are yes and amen. We rest in your promises. You said in Exodus 15 and 26 that you are the Lord our healer, and we put our trust in you. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that you're doing in us and through us. And we receive these promises in Jesus' name. And if you're in agreement, would you say amen? All right, we're in our series called On Your Mark, Get Set, Go. I love that title. A year and a half later, I still love the title. <laughs> still going. On your mark. Get set, go. We're still going. I just got that. All right. Have you know that uh, that that go? It it will end eventually. But uh, thank God for Mark and and his his many writings. Wait till we do Matthew with twenty eight chapters. I mean, dear me, that might be the five year plan. But we are uh, we're very 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 excited to bring this teaching to you tonight. Write this down. We're in Mark chapter thirteen. We're going to be looking at verses one through thirteen. You know better than to give me 13 verses, Gail. Come on. <laughs> Mark chapter 1 through 13. Parallel passage. This is important. This is really important because you, you get a full concept. Carrie, I printed some things on the printer. Would you go get those for me? Would you care? There's some papers on the printer I meant to pass out. Parallel passages, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Matthew 24, Luke 21. They give a, an amplified, expanded version. Mark's version is kind of a short version, honestly, of, of what we're going to discuss. So we're talking about in the last days. In the last days, the end times. And how many of you have heard that we're in the last days? How many of you have heard that we're in the end times? And how many of you have heard this could be, if you'd pass those out, that'd be great. How many of you have heard that this could be the last generation? If this is not the last generation, this sure is my last generation. 
This sure is Joseph's last generation. Even if it's not the last generation, it sure is your last generation. So let's talk about these passages tonight. If you're taking notes, there's three questions that are asked in these passages, Matthew 24, Luke 21. These questions are, when will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of the Messiah's return? And when will this age end? What Carrie is passing out now is just something I printed off of the Assemblies of God website. It just gives a little bit of eschatology, a little bit of end times just for further study. I won't be really touching hardly any of that tonight, but I just wanted to make that available for you if this is interesting to you. How many know sometimes we, we look at end time prophecy and it's a little ambiguous, it's a little vague. It's, it, there's, there's some things that we know about end time prophecy. And there's some things that we suppose about end-time prophecy, and then there's just some things that we will not know. There's just some things that are hidden from us. And so tonight, we're only going to deal with the things that we know. We're only going to deal with things that we can say for sure. Now, let me just tell you off out of the gate, I am not an end-time prophecy guru. I have a general understanding. If you were to give me a written exam, uh, especially multiple choice, I can certainly pass it. Praise the Lord. But I'm not a, uh, you know, I'm not a, 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 an end time nerd, I guess, is a better way to put it. There's some guys that really just focus on this and they have a great ministry in it. And it's, it's a real place in the body of Christ and I value them. I would recommend them certain ones to you if you really have an interest. Some people, this really just kind of melts their butter. Have you know, I believe the end's going to end when it ends. And, it, it, you know, you know, I've, I, have you heard about the, the people that are, pan-millennial. You know, you've heard of pre-millennial, that that's where Jesus comes back before the millennial reign and the tribulation, and you've heard of post-millennial, and, or post-trib, excuse me, post-trib, but Jesus comes back, you know, after the tribulation, and, and I'm, I'm more, I'm really more pan-trib. Pan it's all going to pan out in the end, praise the Lord. But no, technically, the Assemblies of God, we are pre-tribulation. We believe that the church will be raptured and called up, taken to be with the Lord uh, before uh, the tribulation, therefore, that's why we call it the blessed hope. But it really will pan out in the end. Can I have an amen? But we need to know this. We need to have a we need to have a good understanding of this because this is really important. Write this down. One out of twenty five verses in the New Testament. One out of twenty five verses in the New Testament deal with either the second coming of the Lord or the millennial reign of Christ. One in twenty five verses. So there's a lot of weight given to it in the New Testament. It's one of the most uh, frequently mentioned doctrines in the New Testament. 24 out of 27 books mention it. 24 out of 27 New Testament books mention the return of Christ. So it's something that we should definitely uh, talk about and, and, and look at. Now these passages emphasize this. The exact time of, the, of Christ's return is unknown, but the event is sure. The event is sure to happen, but the exact time is, is unknown. And it will occur suddenly. It will occur unexpectedly. And that every generation of believers will have signs that point that we're in the end of the age. Ladies and gentlemen, the end of the age, the end of time started at the birth of Christ. That's when the end of time started. But now we, we're going to talk about lawlessness growing and, and the earth is growing and birth pangs. And, and we can see the coming of the Lord drawing closer and closer and closer. The key is not, we, we shouldn't get hung up on, on when. We should be hung up on being prayerfully ready for the return of Christ. Being ready and watchful and, and looking out for the return of Christ. Before we jump into Mark, I just have a few passages that I want to share with you that will kind of kind of set the tone for tonight. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and 52. 
Now I say this, brethren and sistren, for all the ladies out there, I say this, brethren, sistren, and that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of flesh and blood. Yes, Jesus put on flesh and he came to us, but the kingdom of God is spirit. That's why you are a spirit. There is a real you. When you die and when you go into the ground, your spirit never dies. You're going to live forever somewhere, either in heaven with the Lord or separated from God's presence in hell. Your spirit will live forever. The kingdom of God is not flesh and blood. That's why the carnal mind can't always understand the kingdom of God. The carnal mind can't receive spiritual things unless the Holy Spirit is, is revealing that to them. And that's how people are born again is when it's like the veil is lifted. It's like the darkness is, is removed from their eyes. Scales fall off their eyes and they say, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. Well, the light was there the whole time. But you were blinded. The Bible says, and I believe it's 2 Corinthians 4, that Satan, the God of this world system, has blinded the eyes of, of those who aren't receiving Christ. So this kingdom is not a flesh and blood, nor does the perishable in, inherit the imperishable. Now go on to the next verse. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And that, that's the way they use the term for death. We will not all die. Do you see how they view death? We view death as so permanent. You know, I, you know, I lost my grandmother or, you know, so forth and so on. And when really we didn't lose them. We, if your grandmother was a Christian, we know exactly where they are. They're with the Lord. They're in the presence of Jesus. And so in, in American culture and Christianity, we view death as, as final. But the New Testament church had such a grasp that they're only asleep. They're not dead. They're just sleeping. It says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. How many of that be a good scripture to hang in the nursery? Praise God. Let's put that in prequest nursery. We'll not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Hallelujah. Now look at verse 52. You have to tell that to Pastor Michael. He missed it. He'll want to preach that one day. Verse 52 says this. For in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we thought a few weeks ago when the horn was blowing that maybe that was a, potentially the last trumpet. We said, man, if that's God's last trumpet, he needs to upgrade his horn a little bit. But there's going to be a last trumpet in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We'll be changed to his image. I heard a story about a, a, a cemetery that was offering double-decker grave plots. And they, this lady was there and doing the last will planning and trying to pre-buy the plots. And they said, ma'am, we've got just the thing for you. And, and they said, we've got double-decker, you know, grave plots. And she said, well, what is that? I don't understand. They said, well, instead of going six feet down, we go, we go ten feet down. And then we put you down. And then, you know, we'll put the next person to, to come over you and so forth and so on. She said, ah, I'll never do that. He said, well, why not? It'll save you all this money. She said, because my husband, you know, he's not a believer right now. And if I die first, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. And he's going to be blocking me. He's going to get in my way. I mean, you know, I don't think that's going to keep it from happening. And so, what, what you go, four down, put connect four, you know, put the whole family in there, who knows? But it says, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed, we'll all be raised up with the Lord. Look at Hebrews 9.28. You know, it's okay to joy, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? You know, it's okay to, 
merry heart does good like a medicine. Look at Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Christ came. He came as a baby, but He's coming back a second time for salvation. He's not coming that time to deal with sin because He came and dealt with sin when He died on the cross and was raised from the dead. He's coming to those who eagerly await Him. What I want you to leave tonight knowing and, and in your heart is refreshed is that we should eagerly await the coming of the Lord. Look at Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So as we look at Mark 13, what I want you to emphasize is look out, but it's not yet. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Look out, but it's not yet. So let's jump into Mark chapter 13 and, and see what the Lord would say to us tonight. Verse 1, talking about in the last days. Now, chronologically, we are on the Wednesday before Good Friday. This is the Wednesday before Jesus would be crucified on Friday. We're, that's where we are in the life of Christ when He's teaching this passage. He's going out of the temple, verse 1 says, and one of His disciples said to Him, now this was, we believe, Peter. I believe another, another uh, version in Matthew uh, draws attention. I believe it's Matthew that this was Peter. And Peter was kind of the spokesman. So they were all kind of asking and all kind of questioning and all kind of pointing at this. But, but, uh, but Peter said, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones. Now that word wonderful in the original Greek language doesn't mean wonderful like what we think. It means huge. Huge. Look at these huge, gigantuan, massive stones. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about the temple. King Herod built this temple for the Jewish people to appease the Jewish people. The Bible says, you read in the Old Testament, that, that the people of Israel are not supposed to have a king that is a foreigner. And so there was a great unrest with the Jewish people and Herod ruling over them. And so to appease the Jewish people, they built this massive, magnificent temple. And it was outlined in pure gold. When the sun would shine on it, it would beam and it would just radiate from the sun, shining off the golden trim. Can you imagine having your house trimmed in gold? It was a magnificent palace. It took 50 years to build now let me tell you how big one of these stones was because this is huge. Jesus gave a prophecy about this temple. Do you remember Jesus saying if they tear the temple down, they'll rebuild it in three days? And do you remember how the disciples were like, Jesus, what have you been smoking today? They were having some of what Bob's been having. Jesus, what, what do you, you've been, you've been drinking that new wine or you've been in the, what are you talking about? How can they tear the temple down and build it in three days? It took 50 years. And look at these wonderful, huge stones. Somebody write this down. This is so impressive. These stones were 37 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. One stone. Incredible. So this prophecy is even more powerful. 37 feet by 12 feet by 18 feet. I mean, I'd like to tile my kitchen, but not with one of those. They did that with no machinery, no, no, no mechanics, no architectural software. It's just incredible. We think we're smart. But look what they did without the technology. Just saying. So look in verse 2. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Now, I want you to, to get this here. The disciple was pointing out, look at this great, magnificent temple. Look how awesome this religious system is. We can, we can become 
prideful in our religious system. We can think that we have it figured out and that we've got something better than everybody else. And this temple was a tremendous source of pride for the Jewish people. They cared more about the temple than they did the God of the temple. I want you to see this. They cared more about this magnificent, wonderful building. Thank God for magnificent, wonderful buildings. But they cared more about this building than they did God. And I've heard of churches that are hundreds of years old that, that are, are really not reaching anybody and they're, they're not helping. They're not, you know, relevant in today's culture. And nobody will do anything in that church because it's such a historical, it's just a building. Amen. Don't be so concerned about something that's not important. And so notice here, they said, do you, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. Not one 37 foot by 12 foot by 18 foot. Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. How I many know that's a quite a prophecy? He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. 70 years, 70 AD, the Roman Empire is so ticked off at the Jewish people because they revolted, and Rome, uh, Titus became so angry that they literally went in and completely destroyed the entire temple, the, entri- the entire city. And Josephus, a, a, a church historian who lived through that time, said that you could plow the ground as a field. They pillaged and plundered, killed everybody. It was just an incredible prophecy Jesus was setting up for. So look at verse 3. Mark 13, 3. So now Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite to the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew. This is unique because normally it's three, Peter, James, and John, but now Andrew's in the mix. Andrew finally, after three and a half years, is coming on up a little bit in the food chain. (laughs) Finally, Andrew's with the big boys. And so Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Now, I like this because uh, think about this. If they didn't understand, the other disciples didn't understand. But they felt the need. You know, sometimes we don't want to admit that we don't know something. And, and you know, Bob never does that. He never, <laughs> he never has that problem. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you've ever built something or put something together, and, and you don't want to admit that you don't know how it works and how it goes. And, but they didn't want to admit in front of the other disciples that they didn't really understand. They didn't want to seem like they didn't, weren't, weren't in, the, in the knowledge. And so they asked Jesus privately. Now look at this in verse 4. I want you to see what Jesus begins to answer them. Tell us when these things will be. When is this great temple going to be destroyed? And and what will the sign be when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Look at verse 5. Tell us, when's this going to happen? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. You're kind of concerned about the when, and you're kind of concerned about the time, but you should be more concerned about the deception that's going to lead up to the time. See to it that no one misleads you. Because they will come saying, I am He. I am. Does I am refer to anything to you? Do you remember God talking to Moses and saying, I am? Meaning they're going to come along people who sound like God, who sound like the things of God. But he says they will mislead many. Notice this toward the end times. We'll see many misled. Look at verse 6, 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. He's saying it's going to happen. Those things must, underline that word, must take place. But that is not the end yet. So we see wars, rumors, but that's not the end. Don't be misled. Now look at verse 8. 
For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. And these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Every generation has seen wars and every generation has seen famine and every generation has seen these things because it's the beginning of the end when Jesus came and was born and that, that was the beginning of the end. But we will see that it intensifies and as the time draws closer, we will see, see these things in a greater level. So go back to verse 4. They said, tell us when these things will be and, and what will be fulfilled. Tell us the destruction of the temple. Tell us the time of the second coming. Tell us the end of the age. These disciples, write this down, they thought it would be one event. They thought this would all happen at once. This would be one event. But as we know, it was, it's, it was three separate events. He said, see to it, verse 5, that no one misleads you. This is something I want you to take away tonight. Another word, the same word later on in verse 9, I believe it's verse 9, he says, to guard. And this is translated to take heed. He says, see to it, take heed. It's the Greek word blepo. And we know blepo is something you think they do on TV when they're cussing at you. Bleep, bleep. It's blepo. And listen what blepo means. This is for us. This is a command to us. There are 19 commands in this passage. 19 imperative words, imperative forms in this one passage concerning the end times. Bleepo means to see, to discern. It means to perceive using your eyes. It means to use all of your senses to feel. It means to understand. It means to carefully examine. Many would try to trick them, and Jesus is saying, take guard, take heed, be alert. How many know we got a lot of Christians today just living life and they have no thought about the second coming of the Lord? They have no thought about the rapture of the church. They have no thought about end times. They're just going through life. We're going to read on in one of these passages where it talks about it'll be as in the days of Noah and people are marrying and giving in marriage. And so just going on about life, just doing your thing. And then all of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, the church will be taken away. When we're comfortable and not looking for it, I've heard a lot of preachers say, and I'm hesitant to share this because there, there is, you know, earthquakes and wars and all that that, that will obviously show up as an intensification as the end. But I believe things are going to get better the closer we get to the end times. I've heard people say things are going to get really, really bad. And actually, if you study the Scripture, I believe things are going to get better because when things are better, we're not looking for the Lord. When things are really, really bad, we're kind of alert and we're kind of like, wow, you know, God could come back. He's shaking things. But when things are good, we're cruising along. That's when we're not paying any attention like a thief in the night. Stock market's soaring. Nobody's paying attention. Economy's booming. Nobody's paying attention. Unemployment's the lowest it's ever been. Nobody's paying attention. Things are great. People's getting married, giving in marriage. Great time for the Lord to come back because nobody's expecting it. So he says, I want you to be aware. I want you to guard because there's a tension. See, here's the tension. The tension is every believer. Somebody say every believer. Somebody say that means me. Every, I'm talking about you, not me, amen, but it means me too. Every believer should live moment by moment in anticipation of the Lord's return. However, these prophecies are for a specific last generation. And we honestly don't know if this is the last generation. But Jesus said, be alert so that we're not misled. Now, write this down. Just because someone comes in the name of the Lord doesn't mean they're from the Lord. They're going to come and they say, I am He. Come and follow me. Come out and see just because someone comes in the name of the Lord doesn't mean they are sent from the Lord. 
So we have to discern, we have to be aware and alert. Now let me read Matthew 24. I want to look at verse 8. Just real quick, I want to touch on this parallel passage. And I want us to read this down through verse 14 because Matthew pulls some things out that Mark doesn't have time to put in his gospel. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Verse 9. Here we go. This is, this is the part that I don't think the American church is ready for. They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. How many of you got that scripture taped on your wall? <laughs> Lord, I'm claiming this. Now, obviously, we're not claiming persecution, but we need to understand that the closer we get to the end times, the more persecution the church is going to go through. Notice this here. They will deliver you into tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations. That means all people groups. It means if you're Hispanic, you'll be hated by the whites. If you're white, you'll be hated by the Hispanic. All people groups of all nations, because of my name, you are thrown in jail. And the only charge against you is that you bear the name of Jesus. I've heard it said, they'll call you in front of your family and say, I'm going to kill your family if you don't deny Christ. And what would we do? What would we do if we were faced with that situation? What's my charge? What did I do? What's my crime? It's because you love Jesus. Well, never in America. Notice this here in verse 9. 10, excuse me. And at that time, many will fall away. Meaning they can't handle the pressure. Meaning you're going to see the genuine from the not. American culture Christianity is easy. It's easy. It's easy to wear the badge, I'm a Christian on Sunday and live like the devil on Monday. We, we, don't, we don't preach a lot of consequences about not you know following the Lord and honoring the Lord. In American culture of Christianity is easy. It's easy to be a Christian. It's the cool thing, nod to God on Sundays and do whatever you want through the week. But when the pressure's on, we're going to see the real followers of Christ versus the false. And it's sad. This should break your heart. Many will fall away. Do you know why I'm a pastor of a church? Because I don't want the influence that I have to be the ones that fall away. That simple. That's our assignment, Pastor Michael, is to keep as many as we can from falling away. Notice this here. They will betray one another. They will hate one another. Do you see an intensification of hatred in our society today? Look at verse 11. Notice what Scripture says. Many false prophets will rise. we got so many people preaching garbage right now. It's just terrible. It's just awful. There's so much terrible stuff being taught in the name of the Lord. That's why I'm glad you get good Bible teaching. Amen. Look at verse 12. Notice this. This is so sad. This breaks my heart. Because of lawlessness, many will fall away and most people's love will grow cold. Because of lawlessness. You know what I think of when I see these riots on TV? When there's floods, there's a natural disaster and there's major, major riots and major looting. You know what I think of? Lawlessness, no restraint. Have you ever seen a people with no restraint? As lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now let me challenge you. What can you do to keep your heart warm? I want a warm heart. Who said, well, did you say something about a warm heart the other day? Pastor Michael was talking about keeping our heart warm. Because as lawlessness increases, the temptation is to, to grow cold. Now look at, the, look at the next one here. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14. 
14 says this, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So why do we preach? Why do we evangelize? Why do we do missions? Well, we're helping usher in the end times. We're helping bring the, the close of the age because we're preaching the gospel to all the nations. So now jump back with me to Mark chapter 13, and let's look in verse 7. And, and Mark repeats some of what Matthew does, but I wanted you to see a different perspective. He says, wars, rumors of wars, famines. Now look in verse 9. Here we go. We're going to close this passage with this. So as we see lawlessness increasing, as we see natural disasters increasing, birth pains increasing, as we see the day coming near, be on your guard. That same word, take heed, blepo, be on your guard, be alert, for they will deliver you to the courts. Now, now it's not just the religious system. You see, persecution started out in the religious system, just among the Jews. But Jesus is saying it's going to leave the synagogue and it's going to go into the courts. Your persecution will go to the court system. You will be flogged in the synagogues. Now, flogging is not like what we do with our little kids with a little floss water. I'm flogging you. I'm flogging you. They would lay you down, and they would stretch you out, and they would whip your chest and your front, man or woman, 13 times with a cat of nine tails. It's a, it's a whip with, with bones and pieces of rock and glass attached to the end. And 13 times they would flog you. And you're completely bound and completely stretched out, man or woman, all on your chest and front. Every time that whip would hit you, it would rip out chunks of flesh. Then they would flip you over and do it 26 times. Paul, the great apostle Paul, we think of Paul, you know, looking like Pastor Michael or looking like Joseph. Paul said five times, I was beaten 40 lashes, save one. 13 on the front, 26 on the back. Because they believed 40 would kill you. So they did it 39 times. We think Paul looked like a normal man. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul had some wounds. You saw a friend up here Sunday that had a car wreck over the weekend and he had a little place on his forehead and they were saying, joking about him, going to be a scar. Paul had some scars. My God, what happened to you? I was flogged because I love Jesus. Let me tell you my testimony. And any man that shows up with those kind of scars, I'm going to listen to what he has to say. They beat you and flogged you and put you in prison and you still came to preach to us? You still came to tell us about Jesus? I believe those scars were a tremendous testimony. So it says, you will be flogged in synagogues. You will stand before government. Do you see the compassion of Jesus warning his disciples what's coming? I just read on the way over here, but listen to, I wasn't reading, driving over here, but on the way over, I was listening to the Bible app on the way over, and I was reading in, uh, I believe it was Acts chapter uh, 4 or Acts chapter 12, I can't remember, but they just they had just killed James with the sword. I believe it was Acts 12. They had just killed James with the sword, the brother of John. So this happened. Jesus predicted this, and it happened. It said, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Look in verse 10. The gospel must be preached to all the nations, must first be preached to all the nations. Look at verse 11. When they arrest you and they hand you over, don't worry about what you're going to say. 
Meaning when you're standing there in front of the courts and they're getting ready to flog you and they say, give us an answer. Don't worry about what you have to say. I'm going to give you what to say. It says, but say whatever's given you in that hour. And I've heard a lot of sloppy preachers use this scripture as an excuse not to study. Well, I just believe when I get up there, the Bible says, God will give me what I need to say. Well, can we flog you so that that can become true? <laughs> can, can we? No, you are just lazy. That's all it is. That's not at all. Now, God will obviously give you a word in due season, but this is not an excuse not to study. This means when you're standing there and you're afraid and you're possibly naked and you don't know what to answer, the, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. Do not be afraid. Do not worry about it. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit speaking through you. When I get up to preach, I do confess this. Thank you today, Lord, that as I speak, it's not me speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through me. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Look at verse 11. Brother will betray brother to death. Father, child, children will rise up against parents. And have them put to death. Verse 13. You will be hated by all because of my name. But here's the good part. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I want you to watch a short little video that's a little bit older. It's kind of dated, but it'll give us just a little bit of perspective on what's going on in the world. Because friends in America, we are shielded from, from persecution. So watch this short video and then we'll come back and finish this out. Christians may well be the most persecuted religious group on the planet. They number some 2.2 billion people, and harassment can range from loss of life to loss of livelihood. Including discrimination, you're talking 600, 700 million Christians. In about two-thirds of the world, Christians of one stripe or another face some sort of harassment. It goes back to the time of Jesus and his disciples, but is increasing rapidly in this new century. Christians in innumerable countries are under huge amounts of pressure either from the government or from the societies in which they find themselves. Throughout the 20th century, communist countries caused the most problems for Christians. Today, however, the fear and harassment is shifting to the Muslim world. Open Doors USA tracks this persecution and puts out a watch list every January of the worst offenders. Open Doors President Carl Muller says in this year's top 10, eight of those are Islamic countries. Iraq jumped into the top 10 this year because of many recent brutal attacks, like the massacre of 58 Christians in a Baghdad church this past October. The level of brutality is almost unbelievable. We're actually labeling it a religious side as uh, extremists there want to exterminate all Christians from the country of Iraq. Muslim extremists in Pakistan have been killing Christians at an increasing rate for what they call blasphemy against Islam and the Prophet Muhammad. Christians are being accused of blaspheming Islam by converting from Islam to Christianity. This violence is even happening in Muslim countries that were seen as more secular. Christians have started to be killed on religious grounds in Turkey. That's new. How do Muslims justify this hatred against Christians? The infidels, the unbelievers in what is a Muslim land. There is still plenty of persecution outside the Muslim world, like in China and India, but for good reason, North Korea has headed up Open Doors watch list for nine years in a row now. If you're caught as a Christian in North Korea, say simply leading a Bible study or even owning a Bible, you can be thrown into a labor camp that is exactly like the old Soviet Union's gulag, uh, where people are literally worked to death. What's surprising is how little you hear about this here in the West, in the very countries that were founded as Christian nations and contain huge Christian majorities. 
Some blame it on the elites that control the media and educational institutions. Elites that can only imagine Christians as persecutors, not victims. We've had elite universities basically teaching uh, their undergraduates that the only villains in history who oppressed others for religious reasons were the Christians. Marshall says these elites, both here and in Europe, are often openly hostile towards the faith. Europeans who can otherwise be laid back, they get, um, they get very angry about Christians. There's really an unwillingness to accept the fact that Christians have become an endangered species in some countries of the world. For many secular types in the media and elites, religion awakens, touches on areas they're uncomfortable with, so they, they just want it to go away. For them, it's like the, the fingernails on the blackboard. As for the U.S. government, Aikman worries the Obama administration, or at least Obama himself, has not been nearly as articulate and forceful on religious freedom issues as President Bush. The problem is that can have real and deadly consequences. Many countries that were contemplating some kind of crackdown on Christians think, well, it doesn't really matter. The U.S. is not going to say anything. They're not going to complain. So let's go ahead and make life harder for our Christian minorities. It can result in imprisonment, torture, and even martyrdom for the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul Strand, CBN News. In that in any kind of political way, it's just to tell you that persecution is real. So how do we handle persecution when when this comes in our back door, if you read Acts chapter 4, they're in intense persecution. Intense persecution. I want you to see how they responded. Acts chapter 4 and verse 29. Lord, take note of their threats. Lord, grant your bondservants that we may speak your word with confidence. Meaning we know that when we stand before the judges and the courts that you'll give us what to say. We have that boldness. We have that confidence. So in the presence of threats, grant your servants to speak with boldly boldness. We need to pray that now, ladies and gentlemen. Look at verse 30. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. So this promise is for us to be personally prepared. And the last scripture I'm going to leave you with today as we close is from First Thessalonians chapter 5 as we close this session. So be ready, be alert, be on the guard. Many false teachers are coming. As the end draws near, be prepared. And this is a promise that we have. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, the signs, the times and the signs, you have no need of anything else to be written to you. Meaning these people in the church of Thessalonica were questioning, when is it happening? When is the end coming? And so instead of just being focused on when, look what Paul says here in verse 2. He says this to this church in Thessalonica. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And verse 3 declares this. While people are saying peace and safety, while people are saying the stock market is good, while people are saying we're nice and comfortable in our own society, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And the Bible says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness. We're not in the dark concerning this that that day would overtake you like a thief in the night. We can be ready. 
let this challenge you on two levels. Number one, be alert and be ready and be on your guard. Be aware of false teachers. Be aware of misleading. Number two, we must preach the gospel to all the world before the end comes. We have a commission, and it is great. And that is to reach as many people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So when that day comes, they're not caught unprepared. Amen? Amen. In the last days. Lord, thank you for your word.